our E, our Christmas. I guess Christmas and Easter are always are merged. But again, just to be able to um, take this time to do it. And again, we're, we're using um, this book. And I want to just begin by encouraging you. Um, the One True Gift. And that's, the, the, I guess, the name of the series for, um, for, for this, these next few sessions is The One True Gift. And, and so um, it's set up as devotional reading. Um, you know, if you can order it as soon as you can, you even just get it on Kindle. Um, it's set up in such a way that you can um, read them in, you know, like 25 chapters and then, um, you know, five minutes worth of reading. There's a, there's a hymn and a prayer as well that kind of go with each reading. And, you know, five minutes to read it. But then and always take the time to allow that, whatever, whatever you read that day, to kind of unpack over, over the day. You know, meditate on it. And that's how it will be refreshing. But, again, so I just want to encourage you. It's um, The One True Gift by Tim Chester. Um, do grab it. Um, do read it, um, whether with yourself or with your families. Um, just use it as a devotional as you go through. So this is the series we're going to be looking at. And um, today I will be um, taking three of those chapters um, and kicking off this series. And again, with Philippians 2, um, verse 1 to 5 in mind, as, as you've already heard. But again, I just want to take you slowly through um, the what that means for us. How do we break it down? How do we, again, take what we've been learning in Corinthians, build on that, build on what it is to be um, motivated by the gospel, and uh, again, to just grow. So let me take this time to just um, pray once again, um, and again, break down um, these, first, um, these first three chapters of our series. Father, we are so grateful um, for, again, the season, as it were. Um, hoping, dear Lord God, that this season will reunite families, dear Lord God. Um, families by blood, um, families by spirit, dear Lord Father, that um, at some point, dear Lord, we can touch upon one another's lives um, with our real flesh and blood. Even as um, you yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ, promised to be with us, not in some kind of distance way, dear Lord God, but um, that you will actually come and remain with us, that we will be able to hold the hand of our Lord Jesus and be able to experience that fellowship in person, be able to eat and drink together, um, to be able to laugh, dear Lord God, together about the new things you've done in our lives, the glory of the gospel that has brought us to this, dear Lord. And obviously, these are things that are important to you, and these are things that ought to be important for us, the church, as well. So we, we do pray that this season will bring a refreshing fellowship um, again for us, dear Lord God. And we, we pray that, Lord, this series, dear Lord Father, will also prepare us for this. You know, what does it mean to be um, together, to be in fellowship, Lord, to, to um, be united through you, Lord? As we explore these themes, dear Lord Father, speak into our hearts, allow the gospel to have a way in us, and uh, again, transform us and unite us in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, to kind of kick us off, you know, the one true gift as a, as a series title, you know, I mean, when we think of obviously Christmas and maybe obviously birthdays alongside that, you know, you know, can you look back to some gift that really blew you away? 
I mean, you know, a gift that, you know, when you look back, that was, that was wow, that was a cracking gift. And I normally make those assessments every year. I, I kind of look back and think, you know, what was the, you know, maybe the purchase that I've even made for myself? I said, you know, what has really actually worked out has, you know, been value for money and obviously uh, helped and, you know, enhanced that. And obviously there are numerous things maybe we can look at and say, wow, that was a really great gift or that was a really great purchase. But what about when I think, when you say, what about the ultimate gift? The one gift, the one true gift, or even for those of you with a Tolkien mind, the one gift to rule them all. Does anything come to mind? I mean, that to some extent, that the further away you get from the day that it was given, the more it grows the more you can appreciate it, the more you can say, wow, this gift keeps on giving. When we think of gift in that sense, not much can really live up to the hype. In fact, can anything live up to the hype? When we think of Jesus as being the one true gift, Do we appreciate that as something that is real within your life right now? Or do we just, again, use this as someone who has marked our calendar as B.C. and A.D.? Is that the ultimate gift that Jesus has been, is to literally mark our calendars? Or is it? That Jesus is the one true gift that has kept on giving that as we look at the church today, as we look at um, our local fellowships, as we look at the legacy of 2,000 years, we can look around and we can witness to one another that actually, yes, Jesus as a gift has truly kept on giving. And the further we get away from that 2,000 years, we see that gift growing and bringing peace, bringing joy to so many people around the world. It's important for us to kind of think about these things as, again, as we know, the, 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 especially within the context of the West, that those other gifts can be so distracting to this gift of Christ. I want to begin with chapter 2 in the book, and look at the theme of born to unite us to him. Born to unite us to him. That's, again, the intention. That was the problem. That's what we see from Genesis 3 is that separation from God has been an issue. But when we think about being united to him, do we think about that in the terms that it has a twofold aspect. It's not just a case of I'm united to him and that's it. I want to go back to two parts of the gospel and kind of explore this a little bit different and, 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 and go maybe a different route to understand what it means to be in him, to be united to God through Christ. Firstly, I want to read to you from Matthew 10, 34 to 39. 
It says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's also look at Luke 12, 49 to 53. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you might be thinking, that sounds just like Christmas. But when we think of this phrase, which obviously is commonly there, it kind of floats around the Christmas season, peace and goodwill to all men or people. It is usually confused in the modern mind. Because what we, the peace that we envision, the peace that we see uh, that kind of representing is that um, is a universal one in which all of a sudden people will recognize one another's self-worth through the fact that you're a human being just like me, that they'll put down their guns, they'll put down their weapons of warfare, and then all of a sudden embrace and there will be harmony. That's the peace that most people think about. And to some extent, it's the kind of peace that we see around the season. People, you know, will maybe do those little extra bits of kindness. Maybe they'll let you walk in the store before them. And say, and as they say, well, it's Christmas after all. But even as you think about that, it's the peace that doesn't last. Because when January rolls in and... You know, and you suddenly you know, realize how much you've spent, all of a sudden now, the, the rush to make money again, the rush to, to kind of get on with life and to get over with Christmas and, you know, um, after all that season is finished and a new year is here and you've got goals to accomplish, you've got gym passes to ignore. Everything goes back to normal. It's the peace that doesn't last. However, 
we have to ask ourselves, is this peace, this Charlie Brown style of peace, the same peace that the angels and Jesus offer? When we look at these texts, we can see that the peace that Jesus offers is between us and God. The result of this transition of being in Christ and therefore being part with God is that our new allegiance will come at the cost of other alliances. It's part of assessing the cost of what it means to be in Christ. That in that sense, we are, we are not preaching a gospel of peace that kind of aligns with the world's idea of what peace is. We're offering the peace of God. As us being rebels, as us being those who have cast ourselves away from him, have tried to forge a life apart from him, and therefore are now looking to be reunited with him and have that peace. Even at the cost of peace, with other men who feel that that is not, an un, a not a worthy cause. I would not have peace with this God. Obviously, we see this from Genesis 4, isn't it? The, the tale of two cities, so to speak. The city of Cain and those who shake their fist at God. And the people of Seth, who now call upon the name of the Lord. In that sense, what these texts tell us is that when we align ourselves with God, we put ourselves at enmity with those who shake their fist at God. But it means, however that our messy lives can have the peace that matters the most. And if you were to think about that, and I hope you do, that the peace with God matters more than the peace that I can have at the expense of rejecting God in order to be in line with my fellow man or my fellow human being. It's worth giving up. It's worth putting aside. But being in Christ means we are also out of what we were previously in. Our next theme about what it means to have Christ as the one true gift is born to reshape our lives. So I'm in Christ. I've now transitioned from one kingdom and one particular people to a new set of people, the people of God, the new Adam, so to speak. I'm now here. Now what? You have been declared a citizen of heaven. And so this reshapes your identity. I remember once illustrating this particular passage in Philippians 3 by showing an airport. 
For me, an airport is one of those places where citizenship really matters. And probably more so, because obviously as we go, maybe as our, when we go on holidays, where we are, we're just happy to be there. And when we're obviously at home in our own countries, we go around and citizenship doesn't really mean much. But when you come home and you see that shorter queue that you can get through, all of a sudden you can appreciate being a citizen of the country that you've just arrived in. No long queues. Fast pass your way through. And so in that sense, citizenship does come with privileges. But privileges have to be also weighed with responsibilities. The responsibilities of keeping the law of that country, for example. Or feel the loss of your freedom. When we're in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, as we will see, as I read for you in Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me. So note that Paul is now saying that this is what he's building up to, imitating me, because Paul obviously also sees himself as a citizen. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, and even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We can see some of the stuff we've been recently covering in First Corinthians there, that, that promise of being transformed bodily. But in that process, before we reach that, that period of glorification, we have what Paul now calls sanctification. That whole idea of imitating Christ, of, of looking at, and he's telling his, 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 his church there, and to us as well, that you need to find these people that emulate Christ the best and follow them. Let them be your examples. Let them be your pinups. Let them be the people that you follow. This letter goes through at great lengths to warn the Philippian believers to avoid those who wish to culturalize, my own made-up word there, but I think helps, culturalize them in Judaism. That's who he's telling them to avoid. In recent years, the issue of identity has become highly politicized and volatile across genders, ethnicities, and ideological orientations, whether that, again, be political or philosophical. And we've seen this, identity wars, identity politics, as they would call it. 
But Paul believed that it was important that the Philippians do not adopt a Jewish identity as a means to being saved. And this position was also true of the other apostles. Follow with me if you can, but again, I will read for you in your hearing as we look to Acts 15, 6 to 11. And here we see an issue of Paul bringing up this matter personally with the church and the leaders gathered there to discuss this whole idea of how do we now, with these great emporing of believers, Gentile believers from different parts of the world, how do we now bring them into be one people? Do we bring them into Judaism so that there can be some form of unity, some kind of unifying factor, a one culture to rule them all, so to speak, to bring them in and to rein everybody in? You know, do we want to really support diversity? And the apostles debate this issue, and this is what they say. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We will be misinformed if we do not understand that this was not an invitation to remain in our own cultural ignorance. Oh, it's all free. We can pretty much stay within our cultures and do as we want. What the apostles were not willing for the Gentile believers to do was to exchange one form of cultural ignorance for another. In other words, there is something that we all need to escape within the way that we have understood the world and the answers to how we live our lives. And Judaism, just like every other culture, had its downfalls. So why place one error over another error? As we read on in Acts 15 and verses 28 to 29, we get this cleared up. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. Now, this list is by no means 
exhaustive. But in that sense, it kind of covered the, the basics of paganism within these cultures, that these were the things that they would have been um, party to. And again, we got to look at this and recontextualize it for our own context and say, if they were writing this letter to us today, what might they say that we need to exclude from our own culture that will be in conflict with Christ and the gospel? And we need to work hard to figure out what those things are. Because there are certainly things that, from our own cultural perspective, need to come under the submission of the gospel. Our identity of being in Christ will certainly require us to repudiate aspects of our culture that will come into conflict with the gospel. The challenge before us is not to try and make a new Christian culture. Been tried and has failed numerous times. If that were possible, then Judaism would not need to have been superseded by Christ and the church. If there was a culture that could, could, could transform us and bring us into that place uh, where God needed us to be, then Judaism ought to have been that. But it could not. Our aim, therefore, as we see in our text revealed that the grace of God ought to lead us, our aim, therefore, is that the grace of God, the grace of the gospel is to permeate our lives. That means to, to kind of seek into our lives as we think about it, as we ponder about what we have received, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to have peace. Again, valuing that peace that we have with God, and it now changes our perspective. The graciousness of that, the mercy of that, and as a such, it will now allow us to live a life outpouring gratitude to God. A life of gratitude. A life where I can say, Lord, I, I'm so overwhelmed. I think that's the closest we're all going to get to a Christian culture, so to speak, is that we are there outpouring in that, living in that grace, living in that gratitude, and that we are, as it were, trying to outdo one another, living that and representing that to one another. Loving on one another, not being selfish, being humble, and our lives, living lives truly humbled to be in each other's service. And to be in God's service, ultimately. Our final section today we're going to look at is born to create a united people. So again, this is that gift unfolding. To bring us into him, to reshape our lives. And then ultimately to create a united people. It's funny that being a united people can be read to mean that we should think and feel the same way. Especially about peripheral issues. I think today we see this within, you know, culturally orientated churches as 
as good as that can be, it's a great place to grow and learn because obviously you don't have to kind of go through cultural hurdles to understand what someone is saying. But at the same time, you know, we see other forms of, you know, the praise and worship church, the praying church, the entrepreneurial church. All these things kind of happen where, you know, people of like minds tend to gather together as opposed to being diverse and being able to benefit from all these different gifts. That we find that that people kind of follow a, a trend and allow themselves to kind of become monumentalized in one particular form of Christian outreach. You know, it's when we explore this whole idea of being like-minded, you know, and again the flaws of of what it mean, you know, what it does not mean, you know, we we see obvious signs of this in even in our own siblings, for those of us who have siblings. Even with common parentage, we do not think and feel the same way alike, even on the same issues. As we look at certain things, people tend to develop their own minds. So even when people are raised in the same cultural environment, we can see that the same issue differently. As we look back to 1 Corinthians 12, we, we see this explored a little bit where that unity and diversity is, is kind of the ideal. Obviously, having the fundaments in place, having those things which we know are integral to the gospel, but how that is outworked in the local ministry, it's not as it were as Paul was trying to say, you know, let's not just all be a church speaking in tongues. Let's try and be a church that utilizes all the gifts and to some extent appreciate the fact that even in this diversity of gifts, there is something to be gained. Rather than have this kind of prize and say, well, that's the ultimate prize. And once I've reached there, that's it. And then we all should get there. And then ultimately, all these other gifts that are frowned upon, you know, helps, you know, those who just do the little bits around the church that ultimately make fellowship easier to do. Those things shouldn't be neglected. So this is the model, a unity in diversity. But how do you see yourself in relation to the local church? This is something I thought was helpful in the book. Do we see ourselves as a we or are they? As a they, you are removed from any responsibility to act because it's something that they must do. Well, you know, they could be better at evangelism. They can be better at organizing themselves. They can be better at outreach into the community. They could, they, they could be better at reaching those who are in need within the church. They. However, as a we, you put yourself in the role of being not only responsible but also accountable. 
with your fellow believers. We are not reaching our local community. We are not evangelizing enough. We are not reaching those members in the church. And once you see the the use of those particular words, and you suddenly realize that with that we, we suddenly put ourselves in the firing line to respond. And now we have something to do, as opposed to they have something to do. And this is why the local church has such an important role within the individual believer's life. There is always a danger of overstressing your personal commitment to Christ in which you can then be blinded from your commitment to his people. And we have to be careful of that, especially being in an individualistic society where, you know, we have it our way and all the rest of it, which is, again, has its benefits. We, want, we don't want people to become believers because their parents were believers, cultural Christians, so to speak. We want people to feel that personal experience that Christ died for them. Christ came to save them. And that is important in the believer's mind that, that they are coming to Christ, that they as an individual have a, a necessity to respond to the gospel. But having been saved and now being a part of that, we are now actually united to Christ's purpose, which is to create a new people, to now be united in that. And so it, we do not cut ourselves off from that other aspect of the gospel, which is, again, two sides of the same coin. Now that I'm united to Christ, I am also now united to his people and have a responsibility to them to now have their interests as my interests and their needs as my needs. And so we can't stress either one of those sides of the coin. To be a part of God's people means that now I am somehow a Christian. If you haven't made that individual choice, then you are misunderstanding this. You have to hold both of those sides of the coin in tension. I've responded to God, and now I am part of his people, and I have responsibility to them also. So in application, it's simply this. Where do we do? What do we, what do we run away with in this? Well, Jesus has joined us to himself. So that our minds and our life, that means our attitude and our actions, are working in tandem together to follow him, to respond to him, to think new thoughts, to have new actions following those thoughts. That's what we're doing. So that we will be conformed to him and therefore unite us also to each other. That's the gift of God. That process, that work that we're seeing, that we are united to him. We are now being transformed in him and that we are now united to one another.
So as a church, I pray that we will, again, bear these things in mind as we go through this Christmas season 2020, that, again, we allow the gospel to permeate our lives, to, again, enrich us. We cannot have enough of the gospel. We cannot say, you know what, that's, that's ABC Christianity. No, it's A to Z Christianity all the way through. So I encourage you to respond to this and understand this and, and think about Christ as this one true gift and that work that we represent as that gift as well because we are part of the enrichment of that gift, his church, his legacy that will continue on into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Father, for the gospel that has saved us. We are grateful there, Lord God, that you're the gift that has unpacked itself in such a way that we are now, um, again, part of that gift 2,000 years from when it was originally given. And even there, Lord God, you know, thousands of years before that, when it was originally promised, even from the very beginning, that you gave a promise, dear Lord Father, even in the fall of man, that yet, dear Lord God, there will be a seed that will stand and will unite us together to get together again, Lord. As we may look and, and see, dear Lord God, the fracture, you know, especially, you know, the different ways that little wars have raged, dear Lord God, identity wars and, you know, and actual military wars, dear Lord Father, have been raged. And, and we might be thinking, well, well what, you know, we really need peace, dear Lord God. I, I pray that, Father, we will see the peace with God as the ultimate gift. And, Lord, and as we allow that to unpack, dear Lord God, we will see the peace that that can actually bring into society. It doesn't mean that everyone will love us. But it will mean, dear Lord Father, that the gospel will have some substance as, as people will see it through us. And people united to him have now been reshaped and are now united to one another. That we can have a testimony, much like those martyrs who died in, in, in the first few centuries of the church, and Lord God, where the people looked and says, oh, what love they have for one another. As lions and gladiators tore them to pieces. May we have that testimony as well then, oh God. We may not be standing in arenas with our life on the line. Maybe we just stand out on Lewisham, the Lord God proclaiming the gospel, standing long, side by side of one another. Maybe as we, again, serve the community, Father, through, through Barley Lows and TLG and various other outreach methods, the Lord God, that we do to, to be a, a, a light to the community, Lord, they will see what love we have for one another. Whatever it may be, Lord, we, we, our prayer is there, Lord God, that we will be able to take this gospel for what it is, a gift. A gift to unite us in you. A gift to change our lives for the better. And a gift, dear Lord God, to create us into one people even though we are diverse and are different, but yet one in you. So, Father, we thank you for this. As we go through this series, Lord, continue to help us to appreciate the gift of you. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.